Back in my, my former life, when I was living in the, the mountains of Nepal, you would come out of the house and you would see these awe-inspiring mountains, these Himalayan mountains, all around you. And if, you, if you've been to the Rockies, you can go to the Rockies and you can look out. You can look out at the mountains. No, no, here you would come out of the house and you wouldn't look out, you would just look up. And here are these, these beautiful, beautiful mountains. And, and in some essence, they're, they're delicate. They have gentle streams and brooks. It's melting snow coming out of them. There's this snow being gently tossed at the caps of the mountains. But even in the, the midst of these mountains, even and with all of the beauty there, you come out and you see that there is substance. Not only beauty, but, but substance as well with these mountains. And you stand in front of them and you are changed. This is what we have with our text here this morning. You have Mary in her beautiful feminine touch that is coming onto our text. But yet in the midst of this, there is a substance, I pray, that we will stand before it, and that we'll be in awe of it, and we too will be changed. So let's pray and ask that God would do that in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we, we do come to you. And we pray that you would send your spirit, you are the living God, and that you would change our hearts. And you would mold us into your image and you would fashion us, God. That you would stamp out the rebellion and the pride in our hearts, but that you would comfort us in our sorrow, in our failures. I pray that you would meet us today in your word. Amen. So Brenda has read the text. So where are we going here today? Where, what do we see in this? Main idea, where we're going is that I want you to see that God, the Almighty God, He uses the humble. He uses the lowest from among us to accomplish his purposes. Of all the people that God could have used, He used Mary to accomplish His purposes. You see it throughout all of Scripture. Who does God use? He uses the low, the weak, the lowly to accomplish His purposes for His glory. So God uses the humble to accomplish His purposes. You see that in verses 46-50. through 50, That's that's the way He is doing that in, in the days of, of Mary. He is doing that. He has done that. You look in verses 51 to 53. He has done that. And then 54 and 55, He will do it. Nothing is going to change. It's laid out quite clearly before us. God uses the humble to accomplish His promises. His eternal promises. So let's go back to the text here, verses 46 through 50. We will see that God is using 
Mary to fulfill his promises. And let, let's get a little bit of context, actually. Go up a little bit further. You see, the angel Gabriel in verse 28 comes to Mary. Gabriel, the mighty of God. And he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and, and trying to discern what, great, what, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said, well, how would this be since I'm, I'm still a virgin? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. See, you, you, here you have, you have the virgin birth in which the sovereign God of all creation is going to come and He works in someone who has nothing to offer. God comes and here in this virgin birth, He has created Mary. And though she's a sinner, redemption will come through her, through her flesh. And so Christ will come to fulfill the law by being under the law. By becoming in the flesh. So Mary is conceived, and so she's obviously, she's thrilled. So she has to go talk. And she goes to her relative, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, in verse 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greetings of Mary, the baby, her baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among all women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Not exactly, hey, come on in. Have a cup of coffee. Why don't you? No, this is, this is a loud proclamation and declaration of the work that God is doing to redeem His people. And it's in the, the setting of this setting that Mary replies back with this Magnificat. So go to verse 46. And Mary said, she's responding back, my soul magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humblest state of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call, call me, will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. Verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation. Now growing up in a staunchly Lutheran family, there is one thing that you learn. It's whispered, before, it's whispered to you before you can walk, before you can talk, and it's whispered and you know it. The Catholics are wrong. <laughs> the Pope, he's the Antichrist, and Mary, she did nothing whatsoever. And that's what you know growing up. Catholics are wrong. So you carry this. You, you carry this through your whole life. And until this week, I would get to verses like this of Mary and the Magnificat, and I would just think, whatever, whatever. 
I'm going to move on. So it wasn't until this week that I finally just steeped and simmered in these verses, and you're blown away with this the spirit-filled words of this 13-year-old Hebrew girl. The maturity and the substance that she has and the soberness with which she sees her own life and her own soul far exceeds the maturity of many of us, not all of us, within this room. A 13-year-old girl. Look at the pronouns. Look at the pronouns. Six times she talks about herself, but it's only, it's mostly just my soul, my spirit proclaiming what God is doing. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. For he looked on the humble estate, and she calls herself a servant. It says, uh, verse 48 at the end here, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And it's not like, hey, they're going to call me. Look at me. They're going to call me blessed. No, it's a, what? Me? Really? They're going to call me blessed. Not because of what I've done, because the glory of the redemption that's going to come through the Savior that the people have been longing for for centuries and centuries and centuries. That is why someone's going to be called blessed, but it's me. I, I don't get it. So yeah, she refers to herself, and it's only twice as, as, as the object. Um, but she's confounded and humbly, humbly confused as to why God would work through her. And so you contrast that to the 14 times which she directly talks about the Lord. And even more than that, when she's talking about what the Lord will do, He's brought down the mighty and He's altered those in humble estate. He's filled the hungry and He's sent away the, the rich. He sent them away empty. So she talks about herself a little bit, mostly going, I don't get it. Why would God use me? My soul, it magnifies the Lord. So she talks about herself a little bit, but a whole lot about God and His glory and His goodness and how He has been redeeming and He will continue to redeem His people through the Savior that is to come. The hope of God's people. So you look in this first verse and it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. So it's my soul. All, all that is within her. The, the very seat of her life. And this is not just some super religious Christianese talk that, that's going on. No, it's, it's someone who's coming with not just all that they have, not just all that they have, but the very essence of who they are is coming forth. My soul. The essence of who they are. And her soul, it, it magnifies, to make great. And you'd see the Hebrew word Godel, and throughout the history of, of God's people, they would recount especially in Exodus, when God would have these great and mighty and glorious acts of redemption for His people. Paul uses this same word in Philippians 1 when he characterizes the life of, of full submission to the Lord. And Paul writes this. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored or magnified. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So you have this, my soul, this essence of all that I am magnifying, making great. Of all that I, all of my life, making great the, the Lord. And the, the Lord, just properly, the, the, the person to whom a person or a thing belongs. And it's quite telling that this is how she first addresses God throughout the Magnificat. Sure, later on, she'll go on and refer to him as Savior and everything else, but her first characteristic is him. To whom she is fully surrendered. A full submission to the Lord. And that is how she first recognizes the Lord. So my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Good. Glorious. Why? Go back to the text. Verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his Servant. And so this humility, in its root, in its essence of the word, it has a, um, it's not merely circumstantial. It's not just what's going on around the side of her. So it's not just because she's a, a 13-year-old impoverished girl in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. That's not why she's humble. No. That's what we look to when we see people who are humble. No, no, it's, it has much more to do than with, with that. It's, it's the internal as well, and, and the essence of the word. It's this internal humility. So just as all that she had, the essence, her soul, all of that is magnifying the Lord. So in the same way, all that she is, is of this humble estate. Put that in a self-help book. Go ahead. Try to sell that today. So what was the prerequisite of Mary? From all of the women of David's line, what was the prerequisite then of Mary to be used by God? Was it was her credentials? All that she had accomplished in her 13 years of living at mom and dad's house? No, it was, it was her humility. Her humility. She was quite aware of her inadequacies and she was more than willing to acknowledge them before others and before God. And unless you think that this was then an easy path for Mary, keep in, end of, keep in mind the end of where this is going. This is the very lady who's rejoicing now about the Savior to come in her womb. Her humility is rewarded by watching this son be crucified. God's going to use you. Fantastic. It's never glamorous. It rarely, rarely is glamorous when God uses you. So you see in our text that God uses the humble. God uses the humble to accomplish His purposes. So we must ask ourselves, 
What is, the, what is the state of our own hearts? How would you regard yourself? Do you look upon yourself and go, God, look at my humble state. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing. One of the best elder candidacy discussions, we were talking to future elders, and the, one of the best ones, if not the best, they said, why are you talking to me? No. No, I'm shocked. I'm quite frankly that you would. I thought you were going to ask me about other people who I thought should be. Why would no? Look at these people. He names out four or five other people. They should be elders, not me. To which we said, no. This is exactly why you you should be an elder because of your humility. So this doesn't happen by accident, my friends. It doesn't happen by accident, especially in our cultural narrative and the the waters in which we flow. This does not happen by accident. But no, you must wrestle with your pride. You must take it captive and crucify every thought. Every time you must crucify. They see you in your fancy car and you think, oh, it's pretty nice. Crucify it. A gorgeous home. Crucified. Great job leading worship today. Crucified. 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 Realize that we have nothing, nothing but a humble estate, which is more than enough. Much more than enough for God to work through. So here we are an Advent. We're working through four weeks. We're in week two now. And we're seeing the landscape upon which God uses the the good soil, this this humility. That's where God will plant the seed. It was true in the days of Mary. And it's always been true, even in the past. This is why this this Magnificat recalls to our mind so many of the Psalms, and especially Hannah in, in 1 Samuel 2. Going and just crying out and realizing, I have nothing. I have nothing. This is the story of God's people. And He has always used the humble. So let's go back to verse 51, 52, and 53 here. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought low the mighty from their house. Houses. He has exalted the humble of his, uh, the, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So you you see here. I hope you're beginning to see that it is good. It is good to have nothing before the Lord to come and, and stand there with the hands of a pauper, just open and empty, saying. God, I don't know how you could, but please, please use me. So look at the, look at the proud, though. In contrast to that, look at the proud. In verse 51, you see that He will scatter them through the thoughts of their hearts. So the means by which He will scatter them, the mechanism by which He will shut out the, the pride, prideful, is through their own pride. It will be their own downfall. The thoughts of their own hearts. And then go to verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Even this 
you see the picture of the, the citadel of, of power, the throne. Even that is not immune to God bringing low those who are prideful. It, and it's, you see it. They sit on a throne made of wood that God made, clad with gold that God hid in the earth. And they sit there prideful, arrogant. We sit there prideful and arrogant. Shaking our fists at God. You know, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's what we all do. From our own little citadels, there we do. And it's like a, a toddler, a two-year-old, finally gets a clean diaper and walks around like he's finally arrived. Like he's made of something now. No, no, you're... Don't you see? No, you, you've done nothing. You can't do anything. You have a clean diaper and you're rejoicing in all that you've done and you haven't even done anything. That's us in our pride before God. You're a two-year-old with a clean diaper for now. Enjoy it. Keeps going on. And the rich he has sent away hungry. And you realize how temporal it all is. Here today, gone tomorrow. And you see that God would rather have them starve and be humble than to be proud, prideful. He would rather them starve and be sent away with nothing. And it's worth it. To shed off this, this pride. God will take it all away from you. So contrast this to what you see throughout all of Scripture. You, you see, I guess, you see that pride is it's temporal. So they're prideful in the garden. And God washes that away by casting them outside of the garden. Season after season after season. As they till the soil that once gave fruit to them, now they labor in that soil. And their pride is shed away. Same thing with the pride of the Egyptians. It's their own pride. You see in Exodus 18.11. It was their own pride. That's why they were lording over the people of God. But God washed it away. In the Red Sea. And there's fast forward, for the sake of time, fast forward to the end. All of the pride will be washed away as the people of God proclaim, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Every bit of pride, it is temporal, and it will come to an end. So even within us, Every bit of pride within us will come to an end. We're all like, you know, the kids learned about it today. In Daniel 4, and there's Nebuchadnezzar, he's up on his rooftop looking out over Babylon going, oh, look how, look at this glorious kingdom. Look at what I've accomplished. A week later, people are going, has anyone seen Nebi? Uh, no, I think he's down in the valley. Boy, he looks like he's in pretty bad shape there. That's, that's all of us. We're all up on our own little citadel looking at what we've accomplished. Look at all these papers I've published. Look at this. I'm in my 20s. And I make more money than my parents would have ever dreamed. I made it. I made it. We all have our own little citadels that we're standing on top of, looking out over, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Unfortunately, just to be honest with you, 
uh, pulling back of the curtain. The, the place I've encountered this most is around religious people. The most arrogant, prideful place I've ever been, seminary. It was, it was just, it was in the air and you could smell it and it was repugnant and it was odorous. You, you hated it. Semester one. Get to the end and you go, oh no. It's on me too. And unfortunately, you're the last one to realize it. You're the last one to realize it. You're thinking, Boy, I hope other people really take to heart this sermon. <laughs> it's you. It's you. Pray to God that He would humble you. So, be encouraged and be warned. Your pride is its temporal. We see this in Philippians 2. He's Paul writes that every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The other, others will preach about it in the school of theology. Isaiah writes, For I am God and there is no other. There is no other. So contrast this with the, the humble. You see in verse 52. He exalts those of a humble estate. The mighty He has brought down, but those of a humble estate, He will lift them up and He will use them and He will exalt them. And when and the hungry, they are filled with good things. Verse 53. The rich, He sent them away empty, but the hungry, He will fill them with good things. And so this humility, it has to do with our proper submission Recognition to God. And it's reflected in our, our posture of worship before God. Example, Genesis 24, of humility as a posture, bowing down. And humble, someone on the mount, humble are those who recognize their true position before God. Matthew 18, as we recognize that as fully dependent children. Before God. These children of low estate are the ones that God has used and will use throughout all of history. So look back. We've seen this with Mary. What about Moses? He learns humility through his years in exile in Exodus, uh, Exodus 3. And then you go to Numbers, Numbers 12. He's the most humble man. Of course, that's the one God uses. He uses the most humble. You see that with Moses and Mary. You see that with Samuel. He's a little boy. It's the little one. It's the little boy that God revealed Himself to. What about David? He's the least of all of his brothers. Jacob, he's the second born. He's not the big strong one. He's the small one. He doesn't, Dad doesn't care for him, but Mom sure loves him in the kitchen. That's the one that God uses. You see this with Tamar. A widow who is forced to dress like a prostitute to achieve some sense of justice in the world. That's who God uses. Or Ruth, another widow, 
whose first husband was a Moabite, an enemy. That's who God uses. So if God uses the humble, you see with Mary and Moses and David and Samuel, Tamar and Ruth, God uses the humble, but why? Why would God use the humble? You see, as an example of this in Judges 7, when God is, has Gideon and he has his army of 32,000, then they bring it down to 10,000, from 10,000 down to 300. And why does he do this? It's quite telling. You see in verse 2, Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my, By my own hands, my own hands have I been saved. Recall, I am God and there is no other. God will use the least of His instruments. Why? So that He can have all of the glory. So here is Mary of a low, of a humble estate. Of course God's going to use her. So that He can have the glory forever and ever. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 42. My glory I will not give to another. God is glorified not through eloquent speech, not through PhDs. God is glorified through the humble women and humble men. Serving Him. Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power of God. That it, this surpassing power that it belongs to God and not to us. So it's a grace of God. It's the grace of God that you sit here and you think, Well, I have nothing to offer Look at the addiction in my past. I'm not eloquent like Rocky. I can't quote 1689 like Justin. How could God possibly use me? Then rejoice. You are exactly where God wants you so that He can have all of the glories. We would just be a conduit. For God to bring the gospel to the nation so He can have the glory from His people not only now but throughout all of eternity. I am God and there is no other. That is why the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humble. Not surprisingly, you see this typified in Christ. Christ is the the personification, the personification of humility. Go back to Philippians 2. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or to held to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Okay, what does it look like? He gave up something? No, he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, okay, from God to humanity. That's pretty good. He found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death. Wow. From the throne of God to taking on the form of a slave, being found in human form, he's humbled 
humbled to the point of death, not only to the point of death, but to the point of death on the cross. God will use the humble to fulfill his purposes. God used the humility of Christ to fulfill his ultimate purpose of redeeming his people for his glory that he might be worshipped forever and ever and ever. Okay. So God, he uses the humble to fulfill his purposes and his promises because he loves himself above all else. You might be like God in that regard. And he's consumed with this insatiable appetite for his glory. So uses the humble Mary, Moses, Samuel, David, Jacob, Ruth, and Tamar. Uses them so that he, again, can have the glory. It was done. This is the way it was done in the days of Mary. You see, this is how he's done it in the past. And now briefly, we'll see. This is how he will do it forever and ever. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to his to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this mercy and this this salvific work of Christ is accomplished through this humble sacrifice. And it's not only from the time of Abraham, but it will go on forever and ever and ever. So here's Mary, the one who is a sinner in need of a Savior, gets this glorious news that she will conceive and give birth to the Messiah. The one who created her is in her womb. The one who sustains all of the creation around her, she will soon be teaching to walk. And it's this humble, humble Mary who has been exalted. And you see this again even more clearly in Christ. God uses His humility to redeem His people. And this is the benchmark that God will use forever and ever. That the humble, those who have a a true understanding of their humble estate before God, will bring Him glory forever and ever. Okay. So what do we do? Briefly. Obviously, humble yourselves. Alright? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. James 4. Okay? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that in the proper time He might exalt you. Good. Humble myself. Humble myself. Fantastic. I've been telling myself, my wife's been telling myself for years, humble yourself. I get it. How do you do it? How do you do it? And there's only one way. To come and stand before the mountain. Pray to God that He would give Himself that to you through a revelation, through an encounter, through, through
through a glimpse of the glory of God. Isaiah got this and he was humbled and he was used by God. Mary got this, she was humbled and she was used by God. So the best way for you to humble yourself is to come to the cross again and again and again. Sure, you've, you've done it before a hundred times. Come. Come again. Come. And cast all of your anxieties upon Him. And maybe, maybe you've never done it. Come. Come. And admit, admit, that you, admit that you have nothing. And come with your open and empty hands before God. Realizing that you have nothing, but that He will exalt you. Not in and of yourselves, but that you will be exalted with Christ. That you will have your death with Christ. Your resurrection with Christ. Your exaltation in Christ and Christ alone. That you will have life and life eternal. From your humble estate, that you will have life eternal. Through Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we desperately need You to re- reveal Yourself to us, God. Even us, we've been Christians for years and we think we have it all figured out, God. Show us our humble estate. Reveal to us who we truly are, God. And that can only happen when we get a glimpse of Your glory. So God, bring us to Your cross. And we can see we have nothing, absolutely nothing to offer but our sin and our shame. And we pray that you would take it away. That we would be exalted in your Son to glorify you and to worship you forever and ever. Amen.